This is a message from the Art Intelligence Agency. Welcome to AI Agents, a program that explores the intersections of innovation and artificial intelligence. This podcast is brought to you by a collaboration between the Australian Institute for Machine Learning and the C.F. Fowler Institute at the University of Adelaide. Join our host, Tim Whiffen, in conversation with creatives, academics, and professionals in exploring how human and artificial intelligence can collaborate in divergent ideas for our future. Human experiences are complicated phenomena. How we experience the world through senses and consciousness is the subject of millennia of philosophical debate and the ultimate goal of neuroscience in modern research. As we assess experiences through quantities and replicate neural networks, it raises questions about the human phenomenological experience. What is art except the firing of neurons as we look upon it, hear it played, feel its texture, or breathe it in in the multitude of our sensory modalities? Artists such as Agent Tim Grushy play on these experiences and experiment with multimedia art. Tim's explored the ideas of synesthesia, hearing colours or seeing sounds, and challenged human memories as the expression of these experiences. Using computers and even machine learning to help realise his visions, Tim is a fascinating individual with a unique outlook, and it is a privilege to join him in person for the Art Intelligence Agency as part one of a two-part discussion. I'm joined at the Art Intelligence Agency by Tim Grushy. Hi, Tim. Good to be here. <laughs> it's not often I get to talk to other Tims. Not yeah. as common a name as I thought. <laughs> Indeed, I would have to agree. And usually they're decent people I've found in my experience. Oh, that's good. It must feel nice to know that. <laughs> uh, I'd like to start, Tim, uh, if you could give our audience a, a brief explanation of your artistic interests. Interests and endeavours, which are sort of more or less one and the same. So I got very interested in early electronic music when I was still at high school in the beginning of the first half of the 70s. And also there was an early interest in analogue photography and filmmaking. So even before I'd left school, I was already interested in those two areas. I then pursued a career essentially of over 40 years of practice now where I've explored the evolution of technology and the creative application of those evolving technologies. And again, you know, we talk, we're talking back to the analog era well and truly. So it's been about the uh, nexus between sound and vision and the body. And what I've also done, though, is explore the cultural context of that as practice. So I've never felt the need to limit my practice into any one of the traditional areas of the arts because in a lot of ways I've been, you know, pushing and breaking down those barriers even though I completely understand, you know, historically why and how they exist. It's been a long and interesting journey and very privileged in t- timing-wise, I think, to have had that transition. So that's always been my interest and it's always been my practice. Mm, you said you do visual and uh, audible uh, art, I suppose. Uh, we tend to think about visual examples when we, when we think of art. You know, it's paintings, it's, it's drawings, it's you know, graphic design, if you were to put it as broadly as, 
as, as possible. Is, is there a reason why you find the, the visual so captivating? Well, I don't work solely in the visual. Mm. So I, what I'm interested in is the different sort of human perceptual relationship to our different senses, and I don't limit it to sound and vision either. I've also explored um, haptics, the sense of touch extensively, and to a much lesser extent, the olfactory smell. So for me, it's really about the human experience. And a lot of my work tends to thus take on an immersive experiential paradigm, I suppose, although not exclusively by any stretch. So I, th- I think you know, perceptually we are very visually attuned, uh, fight or flight, <laughs> um, yeah. but, you know, that sort of, you know, going back to those sort of basic human characteristics. But it's, it's always been about both, well, primarily sound and vision, but and forays into the other areas. And what I've been particularly interested in is how is the slippage between these and how you can, and these are some of the areas that I've explored extensively, taking musical composition theory and applying that visually and conversely taking visual compositional theory and applying that musically and then creating works where I'm sort of synthesising those two things together. And then the performative aspect of that can vary also. And I suppose this two modalities in my work. One is me as the performer, be it on stage or, you know, often on stage, or alternatively putting the audience as performer. And in a number of my more major works, I've had two different versions of the same conceptual terrain and possibly even the same technical terrain. So at times I can be in there performing, at other times audiences can go in there and be the performers. Wow, yeah, it's interesting. I imagine that you are able to get some of the feedback from the people who uh, interact with some of your art. And then that would be a really fascinating kind of litmus test of whether they're noticing these patterns between what's happening uh, visually and what they're hearing. Is it, do, do you find that they give you the kind of affirmation? Absolutely, that's a very accurate observation. Um, and and I've just had a, a large-scale interactive work on in Brisbane for three weeks as part of a festival up there called Curiosity, um, Curiosity, which is art, science and technology-based with interactive works. And and it was a, yet another reminder of how important it is to observe audiences and not just to passively sit and watch them and how they interact with these works. And this particular work is one that's... I mean, um, it's had a number of versions over the years, and this was the first public showing of a major new update. So, you know, I, I called it version two, um, even though it's had a lot of, you know, decimal points before it got to there and been shown extensively all over the world, in fact, but not much in Australia. And so to passively watch audiences but then to talk to audiences as well, I find in terms of what I do, absolutely invaluable. And it's something I learned very early on. And, you know, different artists have different relationships to self-criticality and criticality of their work, and I respect that. But for me, I've always found that that, that uh, critical engagement with audiences who are having those experiences and they you know it might be a six-year-old or it might be an 86-year-old and I love you know having that breadth of audience interest and opportunities that allow that um, is is absolutely invaluable and you can learn so much more from that rather than just the sort of people who serve you the platitudes. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine that happens a lot in fine art galleries yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's such an interesting and 
kind of liberal study of the, the human experience down to sort of like sensory experiences as well as the, the kind of subjective descriptions that we might give those uh, sen- sensory inputs, I guess. I imagine that in some ways you have a more thorough understanding of how humans interact with, with sound and vision and touch and and things like that than even perhaps some neuroscientists in the sense that you sort of uh, feed on the ground kind of approach. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that would be reasonably true. And, you know, I have studied, not extensively, but, you know, back in the 70s I studied psychoacoustics because I was very interested because, well, the opportunity was there in the... I was doing some other subjects in the music department, Queensland University, so that was one that I could jump on. But um, in a more, uh, less formal way, I've certainly studied a lot about human perception and proprioception and these areas. And and yes, it is a very, I guess now it's something that is so imbued in my sense of the world that, yeah, I, I suppose I do have a fairly comprehensive understanding, um, even though it sort of happens at a somewhat innate level. Um, mm. But I, I suppose the thing that I'm always more uh, fascinated by is people's inability Interesting. To, to understand their sense of themselves in the world. And that's one of the things that I think is you know, part of the function of art is to help people understand themselves in the world and make sense of the world. Um, and, and that's why I've you know, pursued my exploration of technology and the relationship between technology and the human condition. But yeah, you know, then you, then you get yourself in a situation where you are actually dealing with real scientists, which happens to me from time to time, and you realise that oh, I don't know that much at all. Really. <laughs> but but yeah, perhaps a, an innate holistic approach. Yeah, I'm really interested in this idea of synesthesia because because you're exploring, I guess, some some of this crossover between some of the senses and synesthesia being you know hearing, seeing sounds or you know hearing. Colors. Colors. Yes, exactly. It's just such a fascinating kind of philosophical question. And I feel like it's something that people write about, but I'm not sure that I've ever seen any concrete evidence about it. You might even be able to fill in some of those gaps for me. But what I want to know is in, in, in reference to, to computers, I suppose, when, when we're trying to replicate you know, things like uh, the visual cortex or something like that in code, we have to look at the brain probably a little bit more holistically in the sense that if we have these experiences of synesthesia we can't just recreate a visual cortex and expect that to be equivalent to a human experience i mean synesthesia blurs the lines between these clearly defined systems do you, do you feel like we have a a good chance of being able to replicate that i suppose if we if we were talking in the ai sense in the fuller course of time yes uh i think there's a lot of uh misinformation and misunderstanding about ai in the world at the moment and to my mind and I'm a big science fiction reader so uh, and I've always philosophically pushed the idea that the science fiction writers develop the ideas that scientists then go and propagate so if you read science fiction it gives you a sense of you know where things are heading you know some people would not agree with that but I think that's reasonably accurate so Across the board with technology, we're now, you know, particularly in this sort of, you know, digital era of digital natives, people don't really understand what the boundaries of technology and, and I include AI in this at the moment, what they really are and what the future potentials of them may be. So if we talk about synesthesia for a moment, so that's something that um, 
you know, came to my attention and understanding quite early in my artistic development. So I was fascinated with that whole idea. And clinically it is regarded, as I believe it's regarded as a, a clinical condition that certain people have. But like many of these medical um, descriptions where they're you know, trying to quantify states, I, I think these things are much more fluid. Um, so, you know, perhaps we all have different minor propensities for this and the whole way we try and um, describe our senses and our sense of ourselves in the world is perhaps very culturally imbued and limited. And in actual mm. fact, you know, if we came from a different culture, um, we would, you know, think, understand, talk about things in a different way. So, so synesthesia is regarded as a real condition um, for a small group of people, and certainly in neuroscience there's been work done into that. Um, my uh, application, I suppose, has been much more uh, at, a, at a much more base level where, and, you know, and art is not science. Art can be interested in science, but it's not trying to answer the big questions or come up with the definitive answers. It's about um, exploring ideas and, and hopefully, if you're successful in putting work in front of audiences, getting audiences to have experiences that extend their thinking about you know, mm. this, the concepts and structures that you're working with. It almost raises the questions. That yeah, yeah exactly. Do, yeah, them, exactly. Yeah. It, it, it asks the questions, not mm. gives the answers. And, and in terms of AI and where, um, you know, neural mapping and the understanding of all of that goes, we've still got a long way to go. Mm. So we still, you know, we've made huge, and I, you know, happen to have one particular very close friend who works in this area, you know, we will get there. But at the moment, the understanding is still quite, um, well, the brain is a very, very complex thing and how it precisely works and even understanding then, you know, mapping it, you know, the neurons is only one part of that. Um, so the, I think it'll be a long way before we have to worry about, you know, artificial brains and artificial intelligence, you know, whether or not it can cope with, you know, a synesthesia sort of concept. But as an artist, you can play with these ideas here and now, and I have for decades. So as we said, you know, you're not, you're just sort of trying to ask the questions and, you know, and hopefully get people to think about it. And, and in my work, because it hasn't always fitted very comfortably within the contemporary visual art world, and I've not been worried about that. Um, you know, I just get on doing stuff and it appears in different cultural contexts. But it is still very, uh, you know, I, I, I find it quite prescribed, I have to say, and, you know, still fairly um, conservative in many ways. And the sorts of ideas that, you know, interest me and the sort of activities like, you know, neural mapping, like artificial intelligence, using all, you know, exploring these tools, asking these questions, it, you know, that that's yeah, much more exciting, but it's not actually as sophisticated as, as you know, people might think. Mm. It's really interesting making that distinction. You have a very beautiful and articulate use of, of language and that comes across even in how you describe some of your your works there, there has to be a level of consciousness i guess to reach the same level of intentionality i guess that you, you that we could exemplify um in in yourself as an artist so mm. well one can play with these things as well you know sentience and um is is again a very complex thing that is only partially understood and one can and before ai technology 
was readily available and being talked about at, at the level that and um, you know used as the way it is now, it was still possible to create pseudo sentient entities. And and I've done that in some of my work. And with programming, you can create uh, emergent behaviour. You can create some of the um, indicators of mm. intelligence or sentience um, without necessarily it being a true AI in the sense of where computing is at with AI. So these are areas that I've found conceptually uh, fascinating for a long time. Mm. And, and I suppose those early works have informed how I move on with it. But it's also about, you know, as an artist working with technology, part of the problem is that there are so many areas that interest me. And one has to limit oneself at a certain point. And there are so many avenues of learning, uh, different tools one can use. And AI, you, you mentioned earlier before we went on air about, um, you know, is AI just a brush? And in many ways, for a lot of people playing with it at the moment, that's it. And and in some ways, um, I work with it conceptually, but I also, at a more um, mundane level, I don't consider myself an AI expert. I mean, mm. I know a lot about it. I know I've worked, I've curated other artists working in this sphere, so I've learned a lot about it. But um, in terms of actually hardcore, you know, machine learning, programming, the you know, the GANs, and the no, 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 um, I these days I tend to leave that to other people. Um, yeah. But I do use some of these tools, and it, yeah, it, it, it again, it's very complicated. It's a really interesting dynamic that we we can observe between you know some of these people who are working with the GANs, and you've got kind of software engineers, even people that work for Adobe making Photoshop. You know how much is how much is their input um, worthy of recognition in the creation of something of an art piece that's made in Photoshop? There's really interesting kind of dynamics to think about between all the different people that are involved to get an artwork created. Um, I mean, and AI is sometimes a part of that. Absolutely. And, you know, and there's a couple of points to be made there, I think. One is that art practice these days is a very multifarious thing and the idea of the individual artist working in the garret is sort of, even though, Part of me still enjoys, you know, being alone in the studio making all the elements of what I do. And that's not all of my practice, but some of that is. But um, there are a lot of people involved in the act of art practice these days. And if you look at the big name artists, they might have studios with, you know, 20, 100 people working away on their artwork. Um, and yet from the audience point of view, it's seen as, you know, the artist, the mm. name. And we use, as you say, we use tools that are very complex and that have a whole history of uh, development and many of which are capable of leaving a print, of a stylistic print, and, I, and this is visually and sonically. And because I've, you know, been around for, you know, I can remember when Photoshop was not even in version one mm. um, and then before that I was using other paint programs on other platforms before even. Photoshop was became the dominant one. And I can remember those um, conversations at the time where people would say, oh, any artist that using, all artists that use, and this is going back to the 80s, late 80s, say, um, any artist using Photoshop, it all looks the same. And one could say the same thing about a lot of artists working with AI at the moment. Right. Um, there's a lot of work that has a self-similarity because they're using the same techniques. Um, I, I see this as part of the... Um, the evolution, though, of the creative use of technology. Um, and 
all new technology goes through that phase, uh, but g- good art hopefully goes beyond that. And as an artist, one has to make, you know, as, like any artist, some artists choose to use a paintbrush and paints, mm. and that's completely fine, of course. Um, but as an artist working in the digital and multimedia, there's, one is confronted by a huge array of uh, tools, be it software, hardware, combinations thereof, and one has to make decisions about what one is going to utilise and how that uh, may make the work appear. So I um, am very conscious of that and I try, I use a lot of a suite of tools. I am judicious about deciding when I'm changing tools I also program, so I write my own tools as well, so to speak, and um, and and in many ways that's um, um, I think an important part of my practice because it keeps it a certain amount of individuality to it. Yeah. But but I think you know I think it's always been it's always been thus that you know tools d- define styles. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it has gotten complicated, and and certainly in terms of AI. There are different artists working with it in different ways. Some are hardcore programmers and are doing some, you know, and if you think about someone like Mario Klingman, who's mm. doing extraordinary work and, you know, does his own programming, really very interesting artist. Then there are ones that are approaching it from a much more purely conceptual point of view and may, you know, have other people doing their programming, coding or, you know, production. And that can be just as interesting and exciting as well. And then there's everything in between. So, you know, there's always going to be that range. And like all art, it's, it will always be subjective. Heaven forbid that everybody should like something or everyone should dislike something. You know, the discourse mm. and the, you know, and the, the variance of what people get and take away from different art forms you know that's that's part of the richness of it and that's what we want yeah yeah absolutely i mean and then the the kind of to add further complications the kind of cyclical nature of culture within that the culture contributes to the the frame in which the the art is created and then it also contributes to the the same culture um, as it develops absolutely and i had a fascinating example of that i was in rerun yesterday um the Secondhand record shop, looking, you know, going through an eye-clicked early electronica. Lovely. So, you know, I've got a very, you know, because I started when it was first coming out, very cool. and I continue to do that on vinyl. And um, but there was this young chap in there who was wanting to buy some um, prog rock, specifically. He was clearly a DJ producer, and um, and he was, you know, he was quite upfront about what he didn't know, and he wanted, you know, and he'd been sampling funk and soul and now he wanted to sample he cool. wanted some prog, prog rock to yeah. sample and the guys in there were terrific and helping and giving him some direction and stuff and it caused me to sort of have that thought about having listened to popular music for a, a very long time now in 50 years at least since i was a kid one sees these cycles and things that you know pro, i mean i was around when prog rock first came out or and hip-hop and you know and and paying attention in some ways too yeah. um to the, those shifts and and i've always been interested in those sort of um evolving musical structural forms as well and compositional forms and visually as well of course too but then as they re- recycle you know and the fact that people are now sampling those things and now mm. they're sampling the sampling of those things yeah. and those elements that have that have now been as you say it's cultural recycling and it's getting so layered and complex now mm. and I love that I have to say and it was just so great I didn't say a word but I was listening to this conversation but between this um 
young producer and the older guys who were sort of more my age, you know, in the record <laughs> shop, who had the knowledge and mm. were sort of trying to give him guidance and direction and, and thinking about that, exactly that, the cultural recycling. And that, that that's, you know, absolutely um, an essential part of what we're involved in. One thing I would add to that, though, is that in the area of multimedia arts, there is a problem. Traditional arts, which is still the dominant form, you know, you've only got to go into pretty much any museum or gallery to know mm. that, you know, what. And the traditional arts has a rich art history, which is generally taught. And I, I don't necessarily believe that all artists need to be taught everything. You know, I do believe some people can just, you know, create, you know, often the interesting work is from the outsiders who, you know, come with some crazy left of field idea. But but art history has an important long-standing place in arts education and in informing arts practice. In the area of media arts, sadly, we are really lacking in terms of uh, an arts history around multimedia. I mean, even language fails us, you know, new media, digital media, um, multimedia, you know, the language constantly changes. It's, you know, it's a changing uh, set of Possibilities. So, at one level, it's sort of understanding. It's understandable that language is failing to keep up, but but the lack of art history about it. So, what I do see is a lot of younger artists reinventing ideas because they haven't the historical context. Now, again, that can be all well and good, but it, it does disturb me at times mm. that there isn't more appreciation of the history of multimedia art here in Australia. That's very true. I mean, in other parts of the world, it's not quite as uh, bad as it is here and uh, places it's sort of non-existent entirely. So, you know, again, it's a cultural thing. Um, but I do think, you know, there is a rich history there and and I think um, it would be good if more people across the arts understood and appreciated that. Mm. Well, Tim, I'd, I'd love to come back and, and talk to you again a little bit more about your work and some of the industry observations with you know, regard to multimedia arts and AI. But for now, thank you very much for joining me. Pleasure, Tim. If you're intrigued by Tim Grushy's art or articulation of ideas, make sure to follow his installations and artistic endeavours on his website or follow him on YouTube using the links in the episode description. Make sure to stick around for part two of this fascinating discussion in our next episode. Thanks for listening to AI Agents. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast on your favourite podcatcher and consider giving it a review. Do not forget that you can share this episode with other intelligent people and things, but for now, it is time to close the pod bay doors, Hal.